My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their innermost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. The word of the Lord. So I saw a movie this weekend with my children, an amazing movie, an epic movie, a movie about the ageless struggle of good overcoming evil. It was full of amazing scenes, but what gripped me the most was the characters and how powerful they were. A young woman and a young man caught up in a great destiny that they don't yet understand Old sojourners traveling together, not just on physical journeys, but journeys of coming to believe again. Ruthless power mongers doing everything they can to stamp out the embers of a revolution, even wholesale slaughter. And through it all, this ancient story is being renewed, and a new hope is dawning. I am talking, of course, about the nativity story. I don't know what movie you were thinking of. I'm sure there are other movies that are out there that may kind of fit that definition, Um, possibly in theaters. But in all seriousness, though, I, 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 I watched this really imaginative retelling of the foretelling and the birth of Jesus. And I was struck at how rich of a world the people that that, that created this movie, how rich of a world they painted around Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah, the three magi from the east, even Herod and his son Antipas. If there was a word I could use to sum up the picture that the writers and the directors created, it would be this, longing. Longing. Mary is longing to see what God is going to do, how it's going to justify the scorn and the hardship that she is enduring. Joseph is longing at first just to be able to accept and understand Mary's outlandish story. And then when he too is visited by heaven and he believes, he is longing to know God's approval that he can actually be a surrogate father to the Son of God. Um, The Magi, uh, we know them traditionally as Gaspar and Melchior and Balthazar, which are great names, by the way, and I totally encourage you to use those as middle names for your kids. (laughs) Think about it. Let it sit for a little while. But these these three guys that don't know anything about this, this epic story, and yet they are drawn across worlds and cultures and countries, seeking fulfillment of all of their knowledge and searching of their lives, And searching for it in the most unlikely place, in a child. And they long for proof of their visions in a child. Born in a manger. 
in a little podunk town in the middle of nowhere in Judea. Far away from their centers of learning, far away from their centers of culture, they go. And Herod, having this power, all the power of being Rome's appointed ruler over Judea, but longing for the security of being able to hold it and the peace of living in it and not being able to find either of those things. And Antipas, his son, hungry and longing for the position of his father. There's longing. It's not just in the people. The image of Judea is one of a a country, a culture, a civilization, a people longing for salvation, longing for change, longing to hear the voice of God again and to know that they're his people again. They long for deliverance. They long for Emmanuel, God with us to appear with all of the good and all of the difficulty that that is going to bring. And in that longing, I hear our time calling as well because we live in a time of longing. We live in a time of the longing of the nearness of God, the longing for his presence, the longing for God to be with us again and to bring his love with all of the good and all of the difficulty that that brings. Two weeks ago when we talked about peace, I left you with a question. We sing these Advent songs. We cry out with words like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and we have been waiting for this. We have been wanting this, but do we really want God to come near? Emmanuel, God with us. It's a reality, but do we really want everything that that brings? The unsettling that God's deliverance entails. Because in the Old Testament, the idea of Emmanuel is not always a good one, depending on who you are. If you are the rich, if you are the comfortable, if you are the self-reliant, God coming near is actually rather inconvenient. More than inconvenient, actually. Because his nearness brings his kingdom, and his kingdom brings his justice. And God comes to both break down and remake in his image. And if you've built things up in your image, that is going to be difficult for you when God comes and breaks that all down so that he can rebuild in his image. And many of the prophets, especially Micah, who we read this morning, speak to this day of the Lord as something to be met with both a a combination of hope and a healthy dose of apprehension. Because God is coming with his justice. Actually, true deliverance that God brings can't happen without justice. And I use that word, and it's important that we understand what that word means because I believe that God's justice may be different than what we think it is. We hear the word justice and we think of it being tied to trying to walk that line between making everything right but not turning into vengeance, not turning into revenge. We, we hear justice, we think of punishment. We hear justice, we think of making amends. I want us to consider something when we think of God's justice. Justice for the Lord is not about being a galactic cop and making sure the guilty get punished. I'm not saying that he is not going to right wrong. What I'm saying is is his justice is bigger than that. 
And if we only compress the idea of justice into seeing that the wrong get punished or that the guilty do not go free, we are actually limiting the scope of what it means for God to come and bring his justice. God comes to bring justice in a way that saves, in a way that set things right, in a way that brings right relationship again, in a way that removes oppression and brings freedom to let a people that long for his nearness be reconciled to him so that they could actually be near him. That is God's definition of justice. Not merely to see that the wrong is made right, but to set the right before us and allow us to live in it. And that is what is all wrapped up in the coming in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we sing things like, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set his people free. From our fears and sin, release us and let us find our rest in thee. What are we finding rest in? We're actually finding rest in the justice of God. We're finding rest in his ability to make right what I can't make right. And yes, that does mean taking the wrong and doing away with it, taking the wrong and transforming it. But it also means creating a place where I can be right with God again. And by being able to be right again, that longing in my soul is fulfilled. Our reading from Micah 5 may be one of the most well-known verses from the Minor Prophets because of the way Matthew's Gospel uses it to certify Jesus as Messiah because of his birth location in Bethlehem. But I want us to look beyond just the location of Bethlehem and see what Micah's really talking about in his time. The promise of Messiah coming in the midst of danger and turmoil and distress and even judgment. The army of Assyria is at the gates of Israel. And God is the one who is allowing it, says Micah. The city is under siege. Micah makes it clear through the whole oracle that Assyria is not a force unto themselves. They are being directed by and they are ultimately accountable to Yahweh. And their assault on Israel is an act of God's justice, bringing the lawless and the powerful of the northern kingdom into judgment, laying them low, and yet ultimately in the midst of that distress that is happening because of that is deliverance. And you look at this, and, and you look at what Micah says here, and he says in one. Marshal up your troops, O great city, for a siege has been laid against us, and they are going to strike down Israel's ruler on the cheek with their rods. But you, Bethlehem, at Fafra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace when the, is, when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. He will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our lands and march through our fortresses. Those ideas seem so opposed to one another, don't they? 
In fact, they seem so opposed to one another that some people that have really studied the book of Micah say, you know what, this can't have all been written at the same time. It's got to have been originally that it was kind of like this oracle of judgment and then somebody came along later who realized the picture later on and kind of made footnotes and said, well, yeah, but then there's this. Well, yeah, but then there's this. And I think that's kind of a short-sighted view, to be honest. Because let's think about this. Like we said last week, God is faithful in keeping his promises again and again and again. And that doesn't just mean the promises that make life easy for me. God promises that those who live life like he doesn't rule in their lives are going to be shown otherwise. He makes that promise. And he also makes the promise that those who realize their need for him and cry out for his mercy and his rule in their lives will have it. And God can and will be faithful to both of those things at the same time. He is God. He is able to do those things. And so Micah paints this picture of an Israel that is both under siege and an Israel who is rescued at the same time. A nation who is abandoned and a nation who is redeemed at the same time. An army of invaders who is both successful and who ultimately fail at the same time. In the middle of this turmoil, these seemingly dissonant pictures, the claim is, is that God is pursuing faithfulness and love and peace by turning away from the center of power and looking out to the margins. To the little and the least likely to display his steadfast love through them. And the enemy may be at the gates of the capital, but merciful love is bringing salvation out of this overlooked town out in the country who will be the Messiah, the one who will embody the peace of Israel, even as they're under siege. And I think about what that means for us. We've talked about this mindset of God's character and his plan, this, this imminent coming of Christ, and this anticipation that we have as an anthem, a song, if you will, that is written throughout history, even into our history today. And it's more than lyrics, it's more than music, it is a marker of our identity. That's what an anthem is. It's, it's a song that's more than a song. It's a song that begins to define who you are. And we've said that this song and this identity that it brings to the believer and the disciple of Jesus is different. It is an identity that is overlooked. It is an identity that is misunderstood. It is one that is ignored by the world at large. God's rhythm is a rhythm of a different drum beat. His song is a small voice sticking out in the wall of noise. And you have to seek it in order to hear it. Because first it looks out of rhythm. It looks out of key with the world that we know. God's hope is different. His peace transcends our understanding. His joy stands in defiance of what you and I would call reality. And we've got to remember that. Because as hard as it was for people in Micah's time to hear that, it is as hard for us to hear that those things still exist sometimes and that God is still faithful and that he is still going to do what he has purposed when the world around us does not look that way.
all of those things are difficult to ascertain, but I think maybe there is no part of this Advent anthem that is more challenging to talk about than the love of God. Frankly, these readings that we have, they challenged me this week, okay? They challenged me about what God's love looks like. Especially Psalm 80, the, the middle one that we read, this is not a go-to passage when we talk about the love of God, okay? You are not going to see this being read at somebody's wedding. We're going to go to, like, 1 Corinthians 13 for that, okay? But what the psalmist says in Psalm 80 is so valuable to us, especially in a world that tells us that in love, love is defined as in anything goes, it's all good, look the other way, kind of permissiveness. That's a really wide stereotypical description, I realize, okay? But, but it's a message that we receive, and honestly, it's a message that we reflect a lot. But this is not how the love of God operates, And even as a loving father and a gentle shepherd, he stands firm for his justice, doing what is necessary in order to make things right. And not just, again, to make things right in order that they can actually be free and live. He will break things down in order to remake them in his image so that people can actually live. And so he will do things. He will allow Israel to be fed with the bread of tears in order to bring the deliverance that counts. For God to be among his people is for him to be one who builds up, breaks down, and builds even stronger. And so the psalmist prays this in response to what God is doing. Even as they know that that God's attention is currently bringing testing and trial and suffering to his people. Three times in Psalm 80, in in verses 3 and 7, and it ends it in verse 19, the cry of of the psalmist for Israel is this. Restore us, O Lord God Almighty. Make your face to shine on us that we may be saved. And in verse 14, I think there's an even more poignant cry and it says this. Return and draw nearer to us, O God. You are almighty. Turn your gaze toward us from heaven and focus your attention on us. I don't know about you, but sometimes when things are, going, things are going wrong for me and I know it's because God is doing something for me, in me or it's because I'm not doing something that I know that I should be doing, that I, that, that I want to keep doing, but God is putting pressure on me to change me, the last thing I want to do is say, will you please come nearer to me and, and, and turn your focus more toward me? I'm more like, dude, leave me alone for a little while and let me catch my breath, please. And yet, and yet, this is what the psalmist says. Your nearness makes me realize how, how out of key I am with you, God. And so instead of asking you to leave me alone in my discord, come nearer to me. Get into my business more. Surround me with your song and teach me how to sing in key with you again. I made a critical parenting error this week. I try not to point out the faults of my kids or my wife from the pulpit. Lord willing, I will never do that. Okay? I've known people that did that and I did not respect them for it. So, but I will gladly point out mine any day of the week. 
and I'll confess them. Um, Early this week, there was an issue between one of my kids and I. And it's an issue that's been repetitive. We've had multiple conversations about it, and I was fed up. I was frustrated, and then it became more frustrating. I started correcting my child, and it felt like I had the rest of my family jump on their bandwagon instead of mine, so now I'm feeling, like, disrespected on top of it all, right? And now we're not even dealing with the problem with the kid anymore. Now we're dealing with my ego, right? And so because I felt like I wasn't being respected, I got distant, bedtime came and with it the good nights and the hugs and all that stuff and as this child came to me to apologize I did this very very terrible thing I was tired of the behavior my ego was still bruised and I wasn't ready to deal with it and I told him I'm not ready to deal with it and I turned him away And it was foolish, and it was selfish, and it, I mean, it alienated me from my entire family for the rest of the night. And I had to work really, really hard to kind of press back into my family for the rest of the week. And, and I bring this up for two reasons, okay? First... I'm really glad that God is not like me. Okay? I'm really, really glad that he is not like me. He does not hold a grudge when we come seeking forgiveness. Okay? And especially when we're resistant to him and when we're jerky to him and then we turn around and we go like, I'm sorry. He doesn't go like, I need time to deal with this. He doesn't need more time to sort it out. But the other reason I bring this up is to show the faith of my child, a faith that I I hope and I have prayed to God is not damaged, okay? That no matter what, dad loves. Even in correction, even in frustration, even in painful situations, nothing should touch the fact that dad loves. And I had to ask them for forgiveness later. You know, say, look, let's just forget about you asking for forgiveness and let's just talk about me asking for forgiveness, okay? And for my lack of embodying our Heavenly Father to them, the one who turns and restores in love, even as his love corrects, even as his love refines, even as his love brings repentance, he doesn't stay distant from us, he always moves into our space. He always moves into our lives and he moves into our lives with forgiveness because if there's one thing that trumps God's justice in making things right, it is his mercy in making things right. His steadfast love. Like my child, the psalmist has the right answer. When we are feeling the sting of correction, the lack of right relationship, the need to be restored, we should press in closer and plead for more presence of God. Not settle into a cold distance because God is not like us and his love is faithful to return 
and to draw near and to show his steadfast love no matter what. And so we cry out for his return. That's what we do. We cry out out of our longing for him to draw near, for him to return, because that's what his love is about. I wonder if we've noticed the people in this Advent story. It's not hard to see the peculiarity of John the baptizer with his wild clothes and his strange dietary habits living on the edges of society in the wilderness with his provocative message of repentance for everyone. It's not hard to see the influence of the Spirit in his life or in his parents, in Zechariah struck speechless by God's presence and then proclaiming prophecy by that same presence of God. Elizabeth, she's a prophet too. She's got miracles happening inside of her womb. Prophets dancing inside of her and the Holy Spirit foretelling destiny from her lips, right? But I wonder about Mary. Then there's Mary. She's from the line of Aaron. She's from the line of the priests, but she's not in that calling. She is young. She is seemingly ordinary. She's seemingly caught up in something that is way beyond her scope. So much that she can only just say, let it be to me according to your will. Which that's a, that's a pretty good thing to do when God brings us into something that's beyond us. Is to respond that way and just say, let it be to me according to your will. But I think we tend to only see Mary as the carrier of the promise. The one chosen to be the vessel of Messiah by God. And we miss the fact that she too, like the rest of our Advent cast, because she is in the company of the prophets is a prophet. Her song in Luke 1, 46 through 55 is pure prophecy. Let me read it to you again. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. For his mercy extends to those who fear him. From generation to generation, he's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He's scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he has said, to our forefathers. As we talked about earlier, God is a God of justice. He scattered the thoughts of the proud. He empties the rich. He welcomes the hungry. He lifts the humble. God's about making things right, but that's only part of Mary's revelation. Only part of what the song that the Holy Spirit puts in her proclaims about God and what he's doing in the imminent coming of Jesus as the Messiah. See, as much as he's about justice, he's also about the business of mercy. And in mercy, he keeps his promises with grace to his people. Mary's words are all in the past tense. Even as they're talking about things that are coming. Even things that won't fully be realized until the end of all things. Things that we are still waiting for in this Advent 2,000 years later. It's the height of confidence in God, you know. What he has done, he will do again. God is fulfilling his promise one time. That's, that's just the beginning, right? Remember? 
He keeps doing it again and again and again till the end. That's why he's God. And so Mary's song talks about God remembering age-old promises to Abraham and in his mercy coming near to his people that he can make things right in generation after generation after generation. And he talks about, and, and, and the prophecy talks about the future like it's already happened. Like it's already happening. Because her faith and our faith can be so well placed in that mercy of God. And so here is the core of that faith. Here is the heart of the anthem of Advent. God's steadfast, faithful love. That God is drawing near. That Emmanuel is a reality that will ultimately, and, and it will be a reality that is ultimately merciful. All the judgment, all the trial, all of that is a gateway to the merciful love that is going to finish this once and for all. It's not permissiveness. It's not anything goes. It's the conviction that God is moving near with the intention of making things right. And for God, making things right is restoring us in his steadfast love no matter the cost. That's his love song. It may not sound like the ones that you hear on the radio. But that's because it's grounded in the real. (laughs) This has been and continues to be some of the most difficult Christmas time preaching I've done yet, I think. And yet I feel the sense of urgency for those whose Christmas time is marked by pain instead of delight, by loneliness instead of community, by darkness instead of a lightness of being. And, and maybe that's not you. Maybe Christmas is easily the most wonderful time of the year for you. But maybe, just maybe, your Christmas is marked by longing, just like Israel. A crying out for deliverance. And if so, this is for you. Our God is a God who is drawn near to you. Our God is a God who is drawing near to you. He is God with us. A God whose greatest desire is to be God in your midst. And as unsettling as that nearness can be, and as discomforting and having, a, having his holiness invade your mess and start cleaning house can be, Remember this, you are not alone. He comes with his love. He is mindful of you and seeks to bless you. He is the God who remembers his promises and who comes to fill you with the things that truly satisfy his very own self. And that's the gift that we have in Christ. That's the gift that we anticipate. It's the reason we sing a song calling for his return. Because his return is the fulfillment of his love. And our return to him is the thing he is accomplishing in us day by day by day. And so we cry out for it. Until it's all complete. Until his love has overcome everything else for all eternity. We sing, come.